from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hello, I'm the Washington Post. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. I'm good, how are you? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, December 23rd. Today, the death of the American shopping mall. How Dry January has launched an era of sober curiosity. And the origins of your Christmas tree. I remember my parents used to be like, why are we taking you to the mall again? Like, what do you even do there? You don't have any money. (laughs) It was such a negotiation. Like, can you please just drop me off? (laughs) I'm Ava Vadarai, and I am the national retail reporter. So many of the movies that we grew up watching, I feel like, in middle school and in high school were centered around the mall. Um, Either that's where the drama would take place or it was sort of a critical point where everybody mingled and, you know, things went down. Like in Mean Girls where they kind of equate the mall with a watering hole and everyone's gathering there and you can watch all the primates in in their natural habitat. Exactly. Being at Old Orchard Mall kind of reminded me of being home in Africa by the watering hole. And the animals are in heat. And, and the movie Mall Rats, you know, the name says it all. Eateries that operate within the designated square downstairs qualify as food court. Anything outside of said designated square is considered an autonomous unit for mid-mall snacking. I grew up in the 90s and would just roam around in packs at the mall every weekend, basically. I don't think we ever bought anything, but we would eat at the food court, sort of mill about, hang out. And that was the place to be. I had a very mall-centric childhood, teenagehood, too. Um, I grew up in Miami, and there was a mall called The Falls, and everyone would go to The Falls or maybe sometimes Sunset Place. And we would walk around, and we'd go into Abercrombie & Fitch and not buy anything, and Claire's and not buy anything, and try to see people that we knew from school or from other schools and then try to ignore them when we saw them. (laughs) And it was like a whole social scene, and it was very anxiety-ridden. But that meant that we spent a lot of time in the mall. Yep, absolutely. Same here. But that's not the case anymore. No, it's not. And I think that sort of shared experience where, you know, I grew up in Austin, Texas, you grew up in Miami, and we all went to Abercrombie and Claire's. I feel like that just sort of encapsulates what happened to malls. So many of them were built in rapid succession. They had all the same stores all over the country. They just turned into these like meaningless cookie cutter properties. And I think after a certain point, Americans just tired of them. And so there's actual data on that, that that fewer people are going to malls. Yes, absolutely. Some of that is because of online shopping, but there are a lot of other factors as well. We saw a huge pullback in consumer spending during the last recession a decade ago, um, and I think that's really what set a lot of these dominoes in motions and led to the decline of many, many malls. But the malls are still there. I mean, they're all, and they're huge, right? They are. They are. And that's part of the problem is that there's so many of them. Builders became very build happy in the 70s and 80s. They would just put like three or four malls, you know, in close proximity of each other. And so uh, after a certain point, you just realize you don't need that many. So there are still malls everywhere. And there are many that are succeeding, that are thriving, that are getting people into their stores every week. But then there are also many of the lower tier ones that are falling off. So you reported on one of those lower tier ones that have been having more difficulties of late. What was it like being there? And and what did the people say that you talked to? 
So I went to Lake Forest Mall, which is in the suburbs here in Washington, and it was beyond depressing. It opened with four anchors. It opened like as one of the most grand properties um, in this area. And now this year, it's Lord and Taylor has closed, JCPenney has closed, and Sears has closed, which means that Macy's is the last standing department store there. And what's interesting is that when when a huge anchor store like that closes, it's not only the store that's going away, but it's usually like a huge mall entrance associated with it. There's a huge parking lot. And so when one store goes dark, there's this cascading effect. People might not come in through that entrance anymore, and that entire wing suffers as a result. Um, So there were a number of shop owners, you know, like a wig store and a jewelry shop that were close to the JCPenney that had recently closed. And they said that traffic just fell off a cliff after that store went away. So there's a real ripple effect. And what happens to the malls when they stop having people coming, when the stores there start to shut down? It's a really devastating downward cycle. The stores shut down, which means fewer people come in, which means other stores shut down. Yeah, I was just coming in looking for a denim jacket and walking and find nothing in here. So we've had nearly 11,000 stores um, announce closures this year so far. And what happens is that one of these will close down, and that means less traffic to the mall overall, lowering sales across the board, and then causing other stores to close down. But what's also interesting is that malls tend to die a very slow death. There are different types of leases. Many of them are years long versus decades long versus months long. And so stores kind of fall off at different points. So what you'll see is a zombie mall, as some people call it, where there are maybe a few stores left. And once the mall does die, what happens to it? Like, do people just demolish these huge malls or do they just sit there empty and cavernous? All of the above. So oftentimes they do sit there empty and cavernous for years before somebody comes along and finds a new use for it. And that's one of the biggest challenges is that these are such sprawling spaces. Um, But we've seen a number of new ideas. We've seen homeless shelters pop up in them, uh, mega churches, gyms, boutiques, medical centers, you name it. And basically anything that would need a huge sprawling space um, in close proximity to people and We've seen that. I love the idea of going to church at a mall. Yeah, it's really fun. I mean, there there are a few around the country where people, you know, go to church in an old Dillard store or in some other department store. And um, there's one in particular where they said they turned the mall fountain into the water pipe for the baptism tank. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> but you said that not all malls are having this slow death, that, that some malls are actually thriving. What are some malls doing differently that has made them successful, even though fewer people want to go to malls and more people are shopping online? So the malls that have been successful have found ways to get people into their doors, not just because of the stores, but because of something else that they offer. Um, They offer gathering places, they have restaurants, maybe a brewery that people might want to go hang out at. Um, They've really become destinations. uh, And there are a number of different ways malls are doing this. But what's What's also important is that this requires millions of dollars. It requires huge investments, not only in these services and newfangled ideas, but also just in the upkeep of the mall. People want bright spaces. They want these cool new walkways, and they want to feel like it's an uplifting place to be. Um, And so as mall owners invest in these higher-tier properties, they're in turn neglecting the lower-tier ones, which is creating this widening divide between the malls that are doing well and the ones that aren't. So what's an example of one of these malls where they've kind of figured out how to keep a clientele and how to get people to want to be there? 
Tyson's Corner Center in Virginia has really figured this out by creating a great mix of stores that people actually want to go to. We're seeing a mix of upscale shops, um, Nordstrom, Nespresso, Louis Vuitton, along with 7-Eleven. And so there's a real mix that draws people in and keeps them there. I feel like this is the only mall like within 10 miles. <laughs> so <laughs> that's why people came here. And there are like enough brands in this mall. And I like it. You basically get everything you want it. Where I'm from, originally, Western Maryland, there's some pretty decrepit malls. And a lot of the, the foundation stores or the cornerstone stores are, have went out of business. So, yeah, I mean, this is like the Hilton compared to that. That one's pretty, pretty rough. So, so I've seen both, both ends of the spectrum. I think this Tyson's is growing. There are a lot of residents, a lot of companies. A lot of new restaurants have opened in the area within the mall and sort of surrounding it which is a great way to get people in there. There's a contingent of women who comes in and walks every morning and then perhaps comes back for happy hour later in the day. They just go to, like, walk for exercise? Yes. They just walk walk in laps around the mall? Yep, and they window shop while they're doing it. It's climate-controlled and bright and um, sort of an uplifting place to be, and they seem to really like it. And more often than not, I think they end up in the shops afterwards. So do you think that there's anything larger we can learn about the current state of the U.S. economy from thinking about malls and, and how malls have been doing? Yeah, so I think there's been a real movement away from just selling things to selling an experience and selling sort of a feeling, which is what people are looking for. They can buy whatever they need on Amazon, you know, with the click of a button on their phones. So it's getting that much harder for stores and malls to convince people that they should come in. Abba Batarai covers retail for The Post. The last few years, I've done Dry January, which is where you take a month off from drinking. And last year, my friend sent me an Onion article that was headlined, friend doing sober January must have really f***ed up over the holidays. <laughs> and I feel like that's how a lot of people feel about dry January and about sobriety in general is like, if you're not drinking, there must be a reason and it's probably something bad. I'm Maggie Penman and I'm one of the producers on this very podcast. I think part of the idea behind this movement is giving people the space to try not drinking or reconsider their drinking habits and not have that necessarily mean anything is wrong. So Maggie, you wrote a story for the Washington Post magazine. What is your story about? This story is about a trend among younger people and younger women especially who are thinking about sobriety in a different way. A lot of people use sober curious as a shorthand for the new popularity of trends like dry January or sober September or all of these other ways people are stopping to reconsider the role that alcohol is playing in their lives. But I think the trend is even bigger than that and includes a lot of people who don't drink at all but don't necessarily identify as alcoholics. And so there have started to be places where people can kind of talk about this, like talk about their relationship with alcohol, not in like a 
Alcoholics Anonymous kind of way, but but in a more millennial kind of way. I kind of first found out about this actually a few years ago. One of my friends stopped drinking, and she sent me this blog post by this woman named Holly Whitaker. And she had started a blog called Hip Sobriety, which is like pretty much exactly what it sounds like. And the blog post was entitled, Hi, my name is Holly, and I'm not an alcoholic because there's no such thing. And There's so, no such thing? Yeah. Is that true? Well, no. But, <laughs> but the point that she was trying to make is that basically in our culture, we often think of people as being normal drinkers or alcoholics. And this is an idea that is really emphasized by Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the basis for most alcohol treatment programs in America. And AA is a great resource for tons and tons of people. And it's free, and there will be meetings in church basements. It's very accessible. And it's really life-changing for people for whom alcohol has really wreaked havoc on their lives. Absolutely. But the theory that Holly Whitaker has is that the idea that you are either a normal drinker or an alcoholic stops a lot of people who do have problems with alcohol but don't necessarily consider themselves alcoholics from reconsidering their drinking. And she points to this CDC study that basically found that most people, around 90% of people who drink too much, don't actually have a chemical dependence on alcohol. So she's trying to speak to that kind of middle group of people who are not, quote-unquote, alcoholics. But do you see that sometimes alcohol can not be good for you or that, that they are worried about the fact that they maybe drink a little bit more than they would like to? She basically felt like there was this gap in the market is the way that she puts it. She comes from startup culture, and she definitely thinks about this in that way of like, AA is serving a lot of people. It's helping a lot of people so much. But there are these other people who could be helped by something different. And so she's kind of like been on this quest to help those people. I went up to New York to meet Holly. Hi, so nice to meet you. When I went to talk to her, I went over to her apartment. Um, She offered me tea or coffee or espresso. Basically every beverage except alcohol. (laughs) And when she stopped drinking, she was living in San Francisco. She was in her early 30s. She was living this like sex in the city lifestyle of like going out to brunch with her friends, drinking every weekend and sometimes during the week after work. And when she stopped drinking, she said she felt like it was like basically unplugging from the matrix. I was walking around And I was like, oh, my God, we don't have to do this. It was very weird to exist. It has caught on now. It has picked up. People, a lot more people feel this way, not at any sort of tipping point level. But at that time, no one felt that way. How do you think that culture has become more prominent over the years? So I think you see it the most online. On Instagram, if you search hashtag sober curious or hashtag sober life, you'll see thousands and thousands of posts. There's a lot of overlap with the whole wellness blogging culture, but I think a lot of big alcohol companies have started to catch on to this and they are starting to offer non-alcoholic drinks. 
There are also sober bars opening. It's a bar, but it doesn't have any alcohol whatsoever. Exactly. So I went to one in Brooklyn called Getaway, and I was a little surprised the quote-unquote cocktails, mocktails, are still $13, which I think is, like, <laughs> a little ridiculous for basically a juice. But they're really delicious and beautifully made, and you feel the experience of being in a bar. So I can see the appeal for people who don't drink. But this idea of being sober curious or that if you are reassessing your relationship with alcohol, you can just kind of take a month off and then go back to it if you want and kind of do it for a little bit or not do it. Is that getting pushback from folks who are like, if you want to quit alcohol, you need to quit alcohol and you need to really stick with it. And it's hard and it takes like a certain kind of attitude of, of toughness about it that's not just like, oh, I'm I'm sober curious. There has definitely been pushback. When Holly first published that blog post I mentioned, I'm not an alcoholic because there's no such thing, she got letters that she said made her want to stay in bed for days from people who said that she was going to kill people by telling them that they could decide not to identify as alcoholics. Some of the early pushback that I got was if I dared to give somebody the permission to question the label alcoholic, then I was co-signing their death certificates. I should also say Holly is completely sober. And she says when she has used the term sober curious, it's not to mean that sobriety is something casual or something that you can try on. The reason that I used it back in the day was not to say you can keep alcohol and be curious about it. It was meant to say you get to have the grace to talk about this the same way you would talk about your relationship with any other thing. So what is some of the advice you heard for people who are curious about trying to limit their drinking or trying to be sober for a limited period of time? One thing that a lot of people I've talked to have told me about is the importance of having a go-to non-alcoholic drink or a light alcohol drink if you're trying out drinking a little less or trying to be conscious of your drinking. So like if you order like seltzer and bitters at the bar, kind of looks like a cocktail, kind of feels like a cocktail. It does. But it doesn't have very much alcohol in it at all. There's a thing called an LLB. This is very popular in Trinidad, but it's a lemon, lime, and bitters. And you add lemon juice and lime juice and club soda and Angostura bitters, which maybe has like a very marginal amount of, of alcohol in it. And it, it looks pink. It's like very nice looking. It looks like a very refreshing cocktail. And you can totally pass on that. Exactly. So I think just having something in your hand avoids the question and the awkward moment with people you don't know that well, who you don't necessarily want to explain all of your life choices to. I think as far as what to say, if you're someone who is trying out not drinking or doing dry January, I think the popularity of dry January and sober September and these kinds of moments of taking a break from drinking is helping people because I think that a lot of people understand what dry January is now. It becomes and, a shorthand. You can just say, oh, it's dry January. And that's all you have to say and people get it. And I think... The idea with this whole sober curious movement is that the more normalized that becomes, the easier it gets for everyone to talk about it. Maggie Penman is a producer on Post Reports. You can read her story in next weekend's edition of the Washington Post magazine or find a link at postreports.com. 
And now, one more thing. Graphics reporter and map maker Lauren Tierney answers the question, where does your Christmas tree come from? So the last project I worked on was mapping out where Christmas trees come from across the U.S. So where they're produced, where they're grown, and then where those get distributed to. What really surprised me in researching for this story was that every state, all 50 states, grow Christmas trees. And yes, that includes Hawaii, which was really interesting to find. They don't grow a lot of Christmas trees in Hawaii, of course, but they do grow some that get distributed. The majority of Christmas trees come from primarily two places in the U.S., Oregon, and then a lot of them also come from North Carolina. Trees that are grown in North Carolina, they will get distributed all the way north up to Maine, all the way west across to the Mississippi, and then as far south as Alabama and Florida. And then in the west coast, the trees that are grown in Oregon, they get distributed further north up to Washington and then all the way down to California, sometimes through the southwest and then east towards the Rocky Mountains. And then there are other places in the country where trees are grown locally and then stay pretty local. So around the Great Lakes area, around Michigan and Wisconsin, there are trees grown there that pretty much stay put in the region. I was talking to friends after this story published and they were like, oh, like I looked into it after, you know, the story and looked and oh, like my tree did come from North Carolina and I live in Washington, D.C. And really, I think this mirror is just, you know, across the country, there's a demand for Christmas trees, whether you're in Alaska or Hawaii or Florida. And of course, there's areas that produce more, but each state is able to at least grow some Christmas trees to provide to their state. Lauren Tierney is a map maker and a graphics reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow on Post Reports, binge-watching Little Women. It was our Little Women. It was the movie that came out when we were 12 or 13 and when we needed it the most, just like the 1949 version was probably something that came out when my grandmother was 12 or 13 and needed it the most. And so watching all of these versions, I feel like, gave us a window into women of the time and the experiences that they might have had reliving this novel by seeing it on the screen. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.